introduce the, uh, the classes back there. We thank you so much for the Evens working with them, teaching on their level. Luke chapter 16. So we're going to be today, Luke chapter 16. We'll turn there and uh, look through a story that Jesus told, one of perhaps his most solemn messages. See what we can learn from that today. Life uh, is full of questions. I found a few questions that they're kind of unanswered, and I think they're great questions. If beans are vegetables and chocolate comes from cocoa beans, why isn't chocolate a vegetable? Amen? That's a great question, isn't it? If ignorance is bliss, why aren't there more happy people walking around? If con is the opposite of pro, is Congress the opposite of progress? Amen? Yeah? If you decide that you are indecisive, which one are you, really? Why do the rearranged letters in mother-in-law spell woman Hitler? I, actually, I was, supposed to, I was supposed to mark that one out. That's, that's not appropriate. But questions, questions like this, that are, of course, there's some questions in life that are a lot more serious. Like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And perhaps one of the most uh, question, haunting questions for many people is their life after death. If you look that subject up on YouTube, don't. You'll get a lot of wacky, wacky answers, but it's a subject people are concerned about. Now, the Bible has the answers to these questions. If you ask the populace, and you, uh, I looked at different statistics, 23% of people uh, in Americans will tell you today that you'll just cease to exist. You will be nothing once you die. Here's an interesting fact. 75% of Americans right now, according to a poll I read, believe in hell, yet less than 4% think there's any chance they have of going there. Isn't that an interesting thing? In other words, I believe in hell, but of course I won't go. One big reason that that is the case, I believe, is that we have accepted sin. We're used to it. Uh, we are used to getting away with sin. Certainly as a society, we don't accept judgment. We, uh, we are all about live and let live. Let people do what they want and truth that fits them. We have put our societal approval on myriads of sins in the Bible. Uh, we could have, go through a long list, but you know them as well as I do. Sins that the Bible calls thou shalt nots and our society says, eh, not a big deal. The truth is, there is a judgment for sin. When we die, we go immediately to one of two places that the Bible talks about. The, understand this truth, there was a time when you were not. There will never be a time when you will no longer be. There's always, there, you are alive for eternal, eternity now. There are three things that matter, I'm told, in property sales. Realtors talk about this. Location, location, location. Those are the three things that matter so greatly. Well, location determines the value of the real estate that you're talking about. Can I tell you, location is absolutely crucial when it comes to your eternal home. We're going to talk about that today. Let's read, if we can, starting at verse number 19 of Luke chapter 16. This is a story that Jesus told. 
There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, uh, lest they come also into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Preached to you today for a few minutes on dead men talking. Dead man talking. Father, I pray you'd help us now. This is not a pleasant subject to talk about. You know my heart. It's not a thing I desire or relish, but uh, Lord, it's in the Bible. Jesus talked much about it. And I pray you'd help us today seek the truth from your word. Help us to be challenged to do more than we are doing now to keep people from this awful place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our society today, hell is used, the word hell is used without much meaning. In fact, it's become a common word. People tell other people to go there. Uh, it's used to describe a hot day. It's used to emphasize the word no. There only seems to be one place, in fact, in today's society where the word hell is pretty much never heard, and that is from America's pulpits. We talk about it at work, we use it in our common vernacular, and then the very people that ought to talk about it the most don't. And I, most people don't like sermons on hell, I'm one of those people. I can tell you the only thing that I hate worse than hearing a message on hell is delivering one. It's not a pleasant thing to talk about. We don't like to talk about a place so horrible beyond our imagination that people that you and I loved uh, might go there. Yet Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. And he describes hell a lot more vividly than he describes heaven. There is no denying that Jesus knew he believed and he warned people about the absolute reality of a place called hell. Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll was born in 1833 and he was the son of a preacher, but he became an avowed agnostic and atheist, later atheist. And one time he announced that he would give an address on hell. He claimed that he would prove conclusively that hell is the wild imaginations from scheming preachers just invented to scare people. Well, the day came and he got up to make this speech and he was just about to begin when a half-drunken man in the audience stood up and this is what he said, and I quote, Make it strong, Bob. There's a lot of us poor fellows depending on you. 
If you're wrong, we are all lost. So be sure you prove it clear and plain. Let me tell you, friends, there's no amount of denying the word of God to nullify God's word and the truth of the matter. Hell is as real a place today as Brookings, South Dakota. And this morning, we're going to look at a message given by Jesus himself. And I find it interesting that one of the reasons he's giving this message, in verse 14, the Bible says, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. He's being mocked. Uh, he's being, uh, they're being uh, rude to him, and they're being derisive to him. And he loves them enough to give this story. Jesus, by the way, is the only one that can tell us about this place because no one has come back. It is a picture that he gives of the great contrast between our only two possible destinations after we die. It is a horror story, if you really look at it, and it should accomplish two things in our hearts here today. It should drive every sinner to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ dying for his sin and paying that price, not to have to go to a place like this. It should motivate every Christian to be vocal with the gospel and trying to keep others out of this place. But that story begins, uh, we see the two persons in the story. Jesus told of two men who came from very different situations in their earthly life. The Bible says a certain rich man. By the way, it says a certain rich man and a certain beggar. This is not a fable. This is not a, uh, a fairy tale. This is not an illustration. This is a real story with real people, and Jesus two times used that word certain to underline that fact. There was a certain rich man. We see, first of all, in verse 19, the prosperous man. As far as the world was concerned, this man had it all. He was rich, but his problem was that his riches was only in the material world and not in the spiritual world. Uh, the Bible says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. His suits were all tailor-made, and it was Armani, not J.C. Penney. No offense, Ella, uh, who works there. But it was the fine clothing that he wore, uh, fine linen. He fared, the Bible says, he fared sumptuously every day. He had everything that he desired. Every need was met. Uh, he probably had servants uh, catering to his every whim. He was like so many people in America today. I like how one preacher put it, we are rich in the things that perish, but poor in the things of the Spirit. We are rich in gadgets, but poor in faith. We are rich in goods, but poor in grace. We are rich in know-how, but poor in character. We are rich in words, but poor in deeds. The Bible tells us in Luke 12, 15, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. It doesn't really matter how much you have in here. And see how thin that is? That's what happens after camp. Your kids are beggars, i got to tell you. They're a bunch of beggars. And uh, I wish I could have videotaped that and put it up there so people could feel sorry. We stopped yesterday on the way back at a gas station to use the bathroom, and I was, and Brother Nick too, we were mobbed uh, to buy uh, something for all of them. So uh, anyway, speaking of beggars, verse 20, he was a beggar, the poor man. The word translated beggar literally means poor. He did not have anything in this earthly life. Uh, this man, though, was not poor spiritually. His name is Lazarus. I find it interesting that in this account, only one man is named, the main name Lazarus. In life, the rich man would be known by everyone. I mean, he would be invited to the biggest parties. He would be known by the politicians. He would be sought after, and he would be lifted, and wings of, of, 
of hospitals would be named after him. This is, this is a guy people would know. Nobody would know Lazarus, but yet for eons since then, and for the rest of eternity, one man's name is going to be down on paper, the Word of God, and that is the name Lazarus. Notice his position laid at the rich man's gate, verse 20. Lazarus was put there where he might receive some charity. Maybe once in a while the rich man might throw him some scraps. And then it goes further. He says he was full of sores. He was in a dire state even physically. But in view of eternity, friend, listen, he was the one to be envied, laying down there at the gate rather than the rich man in his riches. Because in view of eternity, what really matters was what was in here, not what he had in physical and material goods. Lazarus had hardly anything to eat. Crumbs was the best that he could do in this life. And then it says the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse number 21, Lazarus was too poor to have medical insurance. The rich man could afford a doctor for any illness, but in eternity it will be the rich man who suffers while Lazarus is in comfort. Oh, listen, friend, don't let your good station in this life provide you with false hope for eternity. What's in here is what matters, not the things that we have. We see the contrast in the passing. Both men eventually die. It does not make any difference whether you're rich or poor. You'll eventually one day pass into eternity. We see the passing of the poor man in verse number 22. If the report here is in chronological order, we see that the poor man died first. Now, uh, it may have been days, weeks, uh, might have been years, but the poor man died before the rich man did. This isn't a surprise. He was not in good health physically. He was uh, not obviously getting good sustenance. And so Scripture uh, tells us that he died, uh, and in, in the order, he would have died first. It does not report a burial for Lazarus. Living in extreme poverty, as Lazarus did, when you were died, you were often, when you died, you were often thrown on the city's dunghill and just burned like so much refuse. But the Bible says that he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Lazarus' soul received glorious attention as the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. In this story, the rich man was buried and Lazarus was carried. Hey, what makes a difference is what we have in here. That's what makes all the difference in the world. Your soul is more important than your body. Your body is temporary. It gets old. It starts to hurt in places you didn't know you had. Uh, as you grow older, you start to feel it more and more. One person said it this way, I'm finally at the place where I get my head together, and now my body's falling apart. That's what happens to our physical body as we grow older. You fade in your abilities. What I'm saying simply, friend, is that your body is temporary. Your soul is forever. Let us not continue to put more emphasis on our temporary body than we do our eternal soul. Here the next we see the passing of the prosperous man. Verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. The wealth of the rich man did not keep him from death. Death is the great equalizer. Death is no respecter of persons. The rich die as well as the poor. The healthy die as well as the sick. Hebrews 9.27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. The rich man died again after Lazarus died. This might seem unfair, but often the ungodly live longer than the godly because God is full of grace, and He allows people to have time to come to Him. <coughs> the Bible says that He was buried. 
The rich man would have purchased the most honorable place to be buried. He did not get the same dishonor that Lazarus did when he died. He didn't get thrown aside. But may I say this morning, it is not how great a tombstone that you have, but what you have in your soul that matters. The burial here, when he says he was buried, this implies a great procession, funeral procession. The man would have had a great funeral, probably many dignitaries and important people there. They would have gotten up front and talked about all the good qualities of this man and, and the things that he did and the money he gave to charity and the things that uh, people benefited from him. A lot of flowers are thrown at, uh, figuratively speaking, a lot of flowers are given at funerals. Again, it doesn't matter what people see, say about us, but what God says about us. Lazarus was despised and unknown by society. He did not have that attention after his death, but he did have some great heavenly attention after his death. It is not the splendor of the funeral that determines the splendor of your eternal home. It is what is in your soul. Now look, we come to the places. Now they had both died. They both ended up in different places. Look at the differences here. Uh, the designation, one of the two places was given a name here, verse 23, in hell, he lift up his eyes. The word translated hell is the Greek word Hades. Hades is not the final abode of the damned. They are there until the great white throne judgment in Revelation 19.20, where they are thrown into a lake of fire. Hades, however, gives us a great picture of what awaits the unsaved in eternity. It is a horrible unimaginable place, and the gates of hell only swing one way. They swing in, not out. It is never a place that is escaped. This was a name given to a place where the righteous went after they died, then gives that name, I'm sorry, Abraham's bosom. It was a place of rest. Now, it was nothing like the glories of heaven, which came later, but it was a place of rest until then. Now, can I say that money did not determine the places these two souls went? What determined it, it was faith, not poverty, that sent Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. It was unbelief, not riches, that sent the rich man to his doom. A lot of times you have people read this story and they automatically think, yeah, rich equals wicked and poor equals righteous. No, no, not at all. It can just as well be that you have a rich, righteous man too. Job was one of those. Uh, and, and you can see that throughout the Bible. Doesn't Money is... Ah, moral. There's nothing evil in and of itself about money. The love of money is the root of all evil, but not money itself. So uh, don't think that it was just because of the riches or the poverty where they went. What determined it was faith and unbelief. Look at the description of the places. It was a place of torment. Verse 23, being in torments. The suffering of the rich man in hell is horrible. The word torments does not do justice to his agony. The greatness of the agony is in that it will never end, but only get worse. And then there was the place of tranquility, Abraham's bosom. Verse 25 says he was comforted. It speaks of rest and harmony. Comforted speaks about the bliss of eternity for the redeemed. And then there's several things we can see about the man that was in hell. First of all, he was aware. The Bible says, he lift up his eyes and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man after death could recognize Abraham and Lazarus. Also, Scripture says that Abraham recognized the rich man and knew how he had lived. Secondly, he was capable. 
The rich man and Abraham were capable of seeing, hearing, and speaking. The Bible says in verse 24 that the rich man cried to Abraham, and Abraham communicated back to him. People in hell are aware. They have their facilities. They can hear. They can see. They can feel. And oh, worst of all, they can remember. What a terrible thing that would be. He, we see next in the story here a plea. Several pleas that came from the man in hell. There was a plea about his suffering. Verse number 24. He says, Father Abraham. Now many Jews or most Jews thought that their relationship with the, their father Abraham, their, the fact that they were Jews, was enough to take them to heaven. In other words, it was not a personal decision. It was because of who they were and they were special and called out by God. But it does not work that way. It didn't then and it still doesn't today. It does not matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter uh, what family you're in. If you go to heaven, it will be because a personal decision that you've made in your own heart regarding Jesus Christ. No person can help you. You must come to Christ on your own. It, and I'm not saying no one can help you there, but no one can do it for you is what I'm saying. You have to come on your own. He said, have mercy on me. Cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He indeed needed mercy, but the day of mercy had passed. He prayed too late for mercy. Can I tell you today that God is a God of love and tremendous and an awesome mercy. Uh, but the, it, by the way, it's, He loves us so much and has so much mercy for us that He sent His only begotten Son to die a cruel death on the cross for us. He not only did that, but then... According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, He made salvation a gift to us. The gift of salvation is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or the gift of God. What a blessing that is. You say that uh, we, we, it make, God could not have made it easier for us to accept His gift of salvation and go to heaven and avoid this awful place here. Have mercy on me. That door of mercy and grace will not stay open forever. If you die without Christ as your Savior, then it will be too late for you. The rich man wants some relief also from his suffering. It's interesting that he gives us some directions on how this should occur. Send the one that I showed no mercy to to come and show me some mercy. What he essentially says, dip the tip of his finger, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Lazarus desired the crumbs from this rich man's table not so very long ago. And now this rich man desires that Lazarus would just take, I mean, he's far beyond the place of wanting to jump into a swimming pool. He's far beyond the place of wanting to pour a bucket of water on his head. He's now so miserable he would like for him just to dip his finger in water. And just that one little drop, just that will give me some relief because of the torment of this flame. Oh, I can't imagine what a terrible place that is. But he's denied. If only a drop of water can bring relief, how great the suffering must be. Four times in this passage, the word or some derivative of the word tormented shows up. Hell is not a place where old cronies get together and play poker. Their misery is far beyond any misery that they've ever experienced on earth. Now, Abraham here denies the pleas of the rich man. You see, Lazarus and the rich man had lived contrasting lives. Lazarus was poor in material things, rich in spiritual things when he was on earth. The rich man was rich in earthly things, but poor in spiritual things. The 
principle here is if you live for the devil in this life, you'll live with the devil in the next life. If you live for God in this life, you'll live with God in the next life. He goes on and says, And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence here cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Verse 26. This gulf kills the idea of purgatory. There's no in-between place. Uh, You're either in one place or the other. Once you die, your eternity is sealed. So the plea concerning the suffering, it brought no comfort. Nor does any plea that is there even today or forever will it ever bring any comfort. What a terrible thought. So the plea for suffering didn't help. So he went to the next one and he made a plea for his siblings. When the rich man realized his suffering could not be alleviated, he changes his appeal. He stops praying for relief for himself, but another wail rises from his throat. Listen to the second prayer of this doomed man. We see perhaps for the first time in his life, his thoughts were on others. He said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. Verse 27, it seems that he could perhaps was the oldest in the family and still had younger brothers at home. He says, I have five brethren that he may testify to them lest they come to this place of torment. He's telling Abraham, listen, can you please send Lazarus? Let him go back from the dead and let him go to my brothers who are also caught up in a life of comfort and ease just like I was and tell them about this terrible place. I'll do anything to help my family avoid this place. Let Lazarus go back from the dead. This refutes, by the way, any of those mockers that say they want to go to hell because that's where all their friends will be. Years ago, I remember my dad, he would witness to everybody he met, and I was with him as just a youngster still. I was with him, and, and uh, he was witnessing to a neighbor uh, who was a scoffer. And uh, dad had witnessed to him numerous times. He was talking to him again. And he said, his name was Jim. He says, Jim, you don't want to die without Christ. And uh, Jim says, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. When I die... I'm going to have him put me in a rubber casket so I can just bounce through hell. The days of that kind of mocking is over the second you close your eyes in death. There's no mocking happening right here. Our text makes it clear that in hell this man does not want his friends there. I find it interesting that now and only now he develops a burden. He does. He's in hell and he develops a burden. Can I encourage you and challenge you today, dear friend? Uh, to develop a burden now. The evangelistic spirit of this rich man, it was too late. We need to develop that while we still can. Here's a thought that I see in this story, as I read it, that convicts me tremendously. And i got to be honest, it's almost to the point of trembling when I think of it too much. Someone in hell probably thought about you today. Somebody in hell probably thought about me today. We see this man here is thinking of people that are still alive that he knows. Now, there are three reasons why somebody in hell might think of you today. Let me give you uh, all three of them. Like this man, they don't want you to go there. Uh, Maybe it's a relative, a friend that's gone on before, and they know there's no escape for them, but they think of you and they do not want you to go there. Their hope and their cry is that someone would tell you how to avoid that awful place and that you would take seriously that call for salvation. 
Secondly, the second reason somebody would think about you in hell, you told them and they did not listen. That waitress you handed a gospel tract to, you may not have even known them. You might not even remember it now. Uh, but if they died and went there, listen to me, friend, they remember you. Maybe you came to their door and witnessed to them or spoke to them at work or ran across them and gave them a, a, the gospel or your testimony. That family member that you witnessed to and they ignored you, maybe even got angry at you. But now, when it's too late, oh, I could have listened. Why didn't I listen? By the way, if someone in hell is, is thinking of me today, this is the one I want it to be. That I told them, and they didn't listen. Then number three, this is another horrible one for us, a convicting thought of us as Christians. Maybe they're thinking of you because you never said anything. There is that one, as they suffer in torment, and the resounding cry is why. You were friends. You worked together. Why didn't you say something? You knew they were not saved. You knew that if they died without Christ, they'd be in hell. Why did you remain silent? You could at least have given them a gospel tract. You could have, uh, maybe you were waiting for the right time that never came. Now it's too late. And they think of you. Hey, isn't that convicting? That's convicting. Dear friend, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to wake us up. Amen? And remember what we're here for. I think of this, and I have three people that I think, I, I don't like to think about it, but I force myself to think about it sometimes because it drives me to be more faithful in the future. But I have three people that I'm reasonably sure think of me on a regular basis. John, Josh, and Keith. Three men that I worked with. It breaks my heart that I let opportunities slip by. I did witness half-heartedly to, uh, to all three at one time, but I, I worked with them on a daily basis. They called me a friend, and I never warned them the way that I wish I would have. I wish I'd have uh, told them more, and, and, and the same thing we all think. I thought I had plenty of time. And each one of these men came to a very short end, and I wish I could do more, and I can't, but I can do more today, and I can do more tomorrow. It's a convicting thought, but it's one that ought to drive us to do more to keep other people out of this place. This man developed a burden too late. If someone in your life needs to hear the gospel message and you know they need Christ in their life, do it today. Make an effort to get that message to them. In the bulletin today, if you got a bulletin this morning, you also got a gospel track. That is my challenge to you to hand that out to someone this week. Maybe you're not in a habit of doing so normally, but I challenge you, step out of your comfort zone. Give that gospel track to someone. Ask God to lay someone on your heart. I guarantee you he will, by the way. Lay someone in your heart to give that gospel track to. Get a few more. The rack is full. I filled it this morning. Uh, grab some of those and make, a, make a, it a habit in your life to give those gospel tracks out. I challenge you to be a part of spreading the gospel message. We see Abraham's answer. Abram saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Listen, this is very important here for us to understand this. Abraham said here to the man that was asking him to go back, he said, sufficient provision has been made for their salvation. They've got all they need to avoid this place. He pointed, out, he pointed to the Pharisees' favorite uh, source of authority. They had Moses, that's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. They had the Bible. 
The Bible gives them all the information they need. Abraham says, let them listen to that. Obeying the scripture would lead them away from this place and to heaven. Now today, I believe we have even much less of an excuse. Not only do we have the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament. And not only that, we have them so available to us today. We have our, uh, most all of us carry a smartphone. And on that smartphone, you have uh, apps that you can download. I think I currently have like five Bible apps. One of them will read the Bible to me. Uh, Bible.is. I recommend that to you if you don't have it. And it'll read it to you. Uh, you can uh, set it down while you're doing other things and have the Bible read. The Bible is available to us today. We don't have an excuse, friend. We're not listening to what it has to say. He protests, though. This is interesting. No, 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 he says. The Bible is not enough. Listen to what he says. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. By the way, that protest is still being used today. That protest says the word of God is not enough. We must use other means to convert people. And so churches use carnal programs to try to convert the lost. They invent things like easy believism or the free grace movement to try to Uh, chalk up more converts. Can I tell you today, friend, the Word of God is complete. The Word of God is adequate. Let's just preach and teach the Word of God. You may be, as I am this morning, convicted at the thought of someone in hell thinking of you. That convicts me like you wouldn't believe. Uh, May I ask today, uh, or you may ask today, uh, how do I go about telling others? I don't know how to do it. And that's a fair question. I, uh, You know, we can do it a lot of different ways. Use the Word of God. Always want to have the Word of God involved in it. I know some men, even in here today, that regularly send text. Send a text message of a verse every day to someone. And uh, they, that's, that's getting the Word of God out there. Use the Bible that way. Uh, give them your testimony. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. By the way, that's everybody's favorite subject, themselves. And so, give them your testimony. Tell them what God did for you in the Sunday school this morning. We had a great lesson in Sunday school from uh, Brother West just giving the testimony of what God did to him in his life in these certain areas. And that's a great way to connect with people. Give them your testimony of what God's done. And then again, uh, I mentioned gospel tracts. Now you say, do tracts really work? If you've been around here for a few, uh, for a while, you know the story. I, I was, the Lord blessed me to be able to write a gospel tract about my testimony and about a year ago, it was last summer, I got a call out of the blue from an Amish man who had, somebody gave him this at a sale, and he took it home. He and his wife read it. Uh, they both got saved. They're in a good, solid Baptist church today. And this November, they're going to come and give their testimony here at the pastor's conference, and they'll be with us Sunday following that too. Really excited about that. God's doing a great work in their life, and it came from a gospel track. And say, well, that's just one example. Three weeks ago, I got my second call. Another man gave a a gospel tract to an Amish person, and he also called. He was already saved, but he had no idea what to do next, and he's kind of aimlessly looking for some direction, and uh, he got a a hold of me, and we've been able to talk to him and help him along. Listen, I'm simply saying these things work. The Lord will use it. Don't, Don't question whether it'll work or not. Just do it. Let him take it. Plant the seeds. You've planted seed before. You know what happens when you plant seed? Grass seed especially. You spread it out there. You know what happens? A lot of it doesn't do any good. Some of it does. You going to decide which one does and doesn't? No, just get the seed out there. Let God use it. He'll do great things and what a reward it is. 
Abraham said something very profound here. He said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If you refuse to hear and believe the word of God, there is no hope for your salvation. That's what he's basically saying here. Nothing else is going to work if you don't buy the word of God. Uh, No amount of sensationalism will ever do the job of converting a person if the word of God is rejected. I was talking to my daughter uh, a number of years ago, and she, she had read something along the line of they had found Noah's Ark. I you know throughout history several times people have claimed that they found Noah's Ark. And she was kind of excited. She said, Dad, if they found Noah's Ark, <coughs> that would prove that the Bible is true and then people would listen to it. No, not at all. Uh, by the way, I'll prove that in another way here. What Abraham said to this rich man actually did happen in John chapter 12. Another man coincidentally, also named Lazarus, did rise from the dead. He did come back. He had been dead four days, and he rose from the dead. And uh, he, he, in front of many friends and witnesses and mourners at his funeral, Jesus always tended to mess up funerals when he went to them. He was, he was kind of a, uh, he, he just upset the whole process there. Uh, so here's Lazarus. And, of course, many faithful people, they worshipped with it, uh, uh, this, this sign that Jesus gave and the fact that he rose from the dead, but do you think it affected the cold and calculating spirit of the Pharisees? Did the people listen? Did the Pharisees come and apologize to Jesus saying, hey, why, now we realize who you are. Did multitudes of people get saved? No, in John 12:10. but the chief priest consulted how they might put Lazarus to death. Again. Really, he's already been dead once. How do we, we need to put him to death? That's how they responded. And when Abraham tells that to this uh, rich man, he says, no, listen, he could go back uh, today, he could go back again and again, and it wouldn't do any good because as long as you reject the written word of God, as long as you reject the Bible and what it has to say, it doesn't matter what else happens. Unbelief, see, is not affected by evidence. Unbelief is a choice. We have all kinds of evidence around us. We have, we have all the evidence we need. Look around. I mean, creation itself, the Bible says, bears witness of the Lord uh, and His handiwork. Just look around. We have evidence. But unbelief is a choice that people make. And so Abraham says, even if I send Lazarus, they will not be persuaded. They will see him. They'll listen to him. Maybe they'd hear him out. Then they'd find some plausible reasons for disregarding the messenger and his message. Dr. Fauci would offer an explanation. You know how that goes. Criticism would dismiss would dismiss it all to hallucination or something else. Then they would always, and they would just go on the way they always had. It's happened over and over. I don't know how many times I've had a conversation with people who say, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Why don't he just show himself? Then I don't have to, this, if he's really there, let him come and prove it to me. And I always like to follow up with some questions. Well, if he does come, let's say he would come and show himself to you. How would he prove that he's God? Well, he has to do something pretty amazing. He has to do uh, something to prove that he's not just a mere man, but that he is God. Something like, I don't know, just kind of shooting from the hip, turning water into wine, healing a leper, raising people from the dead, uh, healing the sick, rising again third day from the dead himself, something like that. God did show himself 
What did we do? We crucified it. Unbelief is not attached to evidence. Unbelief is a choice that people make. And that's what Abraham was trying to get through to this man here. Uh, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. They wouldn't listen if they don't listen to the word. And so this message came to a close. It's perhaps the deepest and most soul-stirring of all the words of Jesus Christ. This voice from the other side, it appeals to, uh, to, for mercy, and then it appeals with, a, with a, all of a sudden a, a caring for other people's souls. To us, it terrifies us. It enthralls us, but it's a convicting voice. It's convicting in its scenario that someone in hell thinks of those that are not yet there. Then one day, it is too late. Yet, dear friend, if you're listening to the sound of my voice today, it's not too late. Maybe you're hearing online or listening uh, at, at a later time, but if you're listening to the, if you're hearing the sound of my voice, you're not too late. You can still make that decision today. Don't walk through those doors and not be sure that your eternity in heaven is settled. You can choose not to go there. And then, dear Christian, you can make a commitment today. I'm going to share the gospel with yet one more soul. I'm going to step up my efforts to the next level to try to get the gospel message to as many people as I know. Maybe it, it would even be, uh, you know, if you're in an area where you're, it's hard for you to get in contact with anybody, uh, giving towards missions and helping missionaries get more of the gospel out. However it is, be involved in reaching people. Whatever you do, I beg you today, do not ignore the message of this dead man talking. We can't ignore it. We've got to do something about it. Every head bowed. Every eye.